This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Lindsay Hunter and Roxane Gay are both here for a couple of different reasons. We have some really great books to talk about today. But also, Roxanne is Lindsay's publisher. In case you haven't heard, there is an imprint called Roxanne Gay Books with Grove Atlantic here in New York. And Hot Springs Drive is the third book that Roxanne has published this year under her imprint. And Lindsay, you have done some very, very cool stuff in this novel. It's part thriller. It's part domestic drama. It kept me on the edge of my seat. I actually read it in one go the first time. And then, of course, I go back to prep for the show and I'm picking at things with a pencil and destroying my galleys. I love doing this, but I am not kind to my galleys. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you to set it up for listeners because we had a quick conversation about how we're not going to do spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. Yeah. So this book is inspired by a real crime. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, what I initially told Roxanne was my quote, n- murder novel. Okay. There is a murder, you know about that in the first few pages, but it's about friendship. It's about womanhood, motherhood. It's about bodies. It's, you know, um, families and, you know, just trying to unite the mind and the body in catastrophic mm-hmm. ways. I think people have been uh, calling it a literary thriller, which I mm-hmm. really enjoy. I think that's kind of what it is. I think it's propulsive. It's funny sad, and dark. And as a reader, I'm going to agree with all of that. (laughs) So Roxanne, you know, yes, you're also a critic as well, but I think this kind of falls under, you know, it when you see it, right? Like you knew immediately that you wanted to publish this novel. I did. I did. I've enjoyed, I've been a big fan actually of Lindsay's work for many, many years Mm -hmm. from daddy to eat when you're hungry. Mm -hmm. I'm getting the title slightly wrong. And so when I asked her if she was working on anything interesting, she sent this along and I read it in one sitting. It's incredibly propulsive and it's just so interesting to read a sort of murder novel, a thriller where you know who did it Mm -hmm. and the mystery is instead why. Yeah. And that's what drew me in. And also each of these characters is so distinct and the novel shifts point of view a great many times. And I love that because mm-hmm. you don't have to guess about what right. other people are thinking. I mean, there, there's a lot of mystery to it still, but you get to sort of see this world through m- most of the characters' eyes. And I loved that. I'm also going to point out that you do have a new book out, Opinions, which we are going to get to during the course of this interview. But Okay, you're writing for The Times, you've been writing for television, you've been writing for film, you've also written comic books, and you're now publishing books on top of it. So we need to talk about sort of wearing all of these hats, and and it is all of a piece, obviously. It's words, it's stories, it's communication, you know, it's community, all of this kind of stuff. But, okay, you know it when you see it, it's the third book of the three books that you've done in the first year of the life of the press. You know Lindsay's work before this, but also... I'm pretty sure you knew how this was going to connect with readers, right? Like you're a reader first. I did. I am absolutely a reader first. And, you know, I, each of the books I've chosen for my imprint thus far, I've loved Mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. And with this book, I thought, oh man, this is just exactly the kind of thing I love to read. 
mm-hmm. and exactly the kind of thing I want to publish. And I think it's going to find a very big audience. I'm really hoping that it does. It deserves a big audience. I think mm-hmm. people are going to feel all kinds of ways. <laughs> it's always great when you have flawed characters because it gives mm-hmm. you something to chew on. And there is a lot to chew on in Hot Springs Drive. It's so satisfying. And it is. Surprising, too. I mean, I got a lot of really great sentences because I, I like great sentences. I don't need to like my characters, but I need to be invested in the time that I'm spending with them. And you've given me some very creepy characters in this book, Lindsay, like straight up. <laughs> you gave me a couple of people. I was like, okay, I'm going to stay, but I do not like you. <laughs> you are horrible. <laughs> but I want to talk about the construction of this book too, because you are, you're juggling POVs. There's sort of a timelessness to the storytelling too, like the way you open and it's like, well, here's the house. We're just going to start with the house. And walking around and sort of all of the things that we as human beings will imprint on a house, right? Like the ideas that we'll put onto a location and whatnot. And we start there and I'm like, okay, you have my attention. (laughs) You have my attention. But this is, you cover a lot. Yeah. It's a big political novel in thriller drag. (laughs) God, wow. It is. It is. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it's interesting how you notice how much is covered because when I was originally writing the novel, I was thinking of it as my crazy quilt novel. I had just written a novel before that that I was thinking of as my collage novel, which okay. I was trying to layer time on top of itself. Mm-hmm. How I feel as a parent, mm-hmm. you know, time is always happening. All these different times in your life is always happening. So that was my collage novel. And when I approached this, when I first heard about this crime, and I knew that I had to write it in some way to understand it, I was thinking about how, what was interesting to me was the why of it versus the who and sort of thinking about these characters in terms of what, you know, what came next. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how, what I love about good true crime and good crime is that it's, that it is kind of like a crazy quilt or, or I've more recently been thinking of it as like a a shattered windshield where it's shards, these pieces that you can put it together and you can kind of see the whole, but it maybe doesn't make sense as the whole. And so you have to kind of look closer. And so that honestly was what I was going for when I was drafting it. You know, I would think I need to show Jackie in a way that like a stranger would see her Mm because I can't, you know, I'm going to show her the way her kids see her in this other section or her, you know, lover or whatever, but I'm not, I want to see her completely objectively the way a stranger would see her. So I'm going to write this from the realtor and that's going to get them into the neighborhood too. And so, you know, that's kind of how I was approaching it. And it moved around in time a lot in the original draft. It was, you know, you would kind of see the aftermath and then you would see, you know, like 20 years in the past. And through revising with Roxanne, which I would love to talk about that because (laughs) God bless her. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I kind of let myself understand that it was okay when you have such an explosive crime, like an explosive Mm -hmm. action. That is sort of the kernel of the book, that it's okay to let everything else sort of happen chronologically, which is such a funny realization for a writer to come to. Like, it's okay for it to happen in order that it happens. But I had <laughs> really holding on to this mm-hmm. feeling of being able to present the whole, even as it was in pieces, right. you know, all at once. And so that was, you know, through working with Roxanne and, and um, you know, her very clear and direct understanding of 
of me as a writer. I, yeah. you know, that's something I could, I knew I could trust her with. She and I have been friends. She and I have been mutual fans of each other. She knows my writing. She's published me before in various mm-hmm. endeavors. I could trust she was going to be truthful with me and I could trust her vision because she mm-hmm. was preserving what she loved about what I was creating. You also did surprise me towards the end. There's some stuff that you do with time and some characters. And I was really, because, you know, I was kind of like, all right, let's see how we pull this together at the end. And yeah, you did some very cool stuff. And there is a little bit of a shift in time, but it's, yeah, I'm really trying not to give anything away. (laughs) Yeah, I think I can talk a little bit to that without spoiling it. Okay. I think that's also related to Roxanne's feedback. You know, I sent it to her. It wasn't finished. It wasn't a finished draft. It was, you know, almost a finished draft, but it wasn't. And so there was like a mutual trust between us. So I feel like she trusted that I was going to bring it to a place that she could work with. But she also knew, you know, as a reader, I'm looking at this and I, it's not that it's bad to have questions because I do want my readers to leave with questions and to keep thinking about it as it goes. Cause that's kind of how I feel about the crime itself. And that's what's meaningful to me about it. But are we cheating the readers out of something that would make it even more meaningful? And so, you know, she kind of laid out for me, like, these are questions people are going to have, and these are questions that matter. And, you know, it takes an editor to see that, I think, you know, I think, you know, like I get so into the making of it that I need someone to remember, you know, remind me of creating space for a reader to inhabit that world as well. I do want to talk about collaboration for a second, because I think It's always fascinating to me as a reader to know sort of what that looks like. There's this idea, right, that a writer is sitting in their garret of choice, right, or their room with no windows, et cetera, what have you, working away, working away, working away. And I do think like this idea that you're creating in a vacuum is not necessarily, well, accurate to start with, but can we just talk about how the changes come about and and what that sort of exchange of ideas looks like? Yeah, I I think I do actually write in a vacuum. I don't tend to show my stuff to be... (laughs) Let me just refute your entire question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not the writer. I'm just the bookseller. (laughs) But no, you're correct in that a lot of writers do have readers that they turn to and reading groups, etc. But I I don't tend to to do that initially. What I usually do is assault my poor agent and just say, what I did, (laughs) what do you think? And he's very gracious. But in this case, you know, I was still deep in the process of working on it when Roxanne asked me to see it. And I think if it was anyone else, I would have been, you know, like, uh, I need, you know, another year before I show this to you. But because, you know, and and I would have these, like, these thoughts and these doubts throughout as I was editing. And and I would suddenly come to and think, like, but Roxanne's not going to lie to you. Like, Roxanne's going to be truthful. And she's, she's just... She's a natural editor, even as she's such an amazing writer. She's just, she just gets it and she's able to just say it. And so, you know, I think for me, it really was even more of a collaboration than I've ever experienced in my previous books because I felt like Roxanne, Roxanne and I were bringing it to its completion together. Okay. Roxanne, I know the new book is op-eds and essay pieces, mostly written in response to the news cycle. Right? Opinions? I mean, I think that's fair. The first two-thirds feel like it's all sort of in conversation with current events, and then there's some... Yeah. I mean, I think it's in part not only responding to current events, but just trying to make sense of them. 
Because so much of what we've been dealing with, particularly over the past decade, and of course, this is not new, uh, history is cyclical, but we've been dealing with some really terrible, terrible things, some like fundamentally existential crises. And I think a lot of us need to think through what it all means and our place in it and what we can do as individuals to try and create change or to say, we are not okay with this. And then the other part of the book is cultural criticism. That's more book reviews, profiles, the kinds of work that I get to do is interesting and that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And that engages with the culture that we consume, not only the culture that we're living in. So part of that, though, part of that work, right, comes back to what you were doing with Lindsay. Yeah. Because Lindsay's novel is not without its own cultural criticism. I mean, certainly the way women move in our bodies and how people see our bodies. Everyone has opinions about our bodies, and sometimes we internalize those opinions as well. And it is the same set of muscles, though, pardon the metaphor, right? When you're when you're flipping from writing these pieces that are in conversation with the moment, and then being able to step back and say, hey, Lindsay, let's sit down and work on an edit on your novel that is essentially coming back to a lot of this from a side point, right? Yes. You know, with Lindsay's novel, so much of it is about desire. And I mean, some people will say all fiction is about desire, but this one in particular is about want. And Jackie has this naked, unapologetic want. She wants food. She wants love. She wants sex. She wants peace from her children. <laughs> and you know, I wanted to make sure that we could bring that out and show that so many women deal with wanting things for themselves and being told that they have to deny it, being told that they have to subsume themselves in service of their partners, in service of their children, in service of their jobs, in service of society. And so to see a story about a woman who knows that and for a time does that and then decides she's had enough. It's great because it, there's a liberating sense of, wow, this is what happens for better or worse when someone decides to abandon the cultural expectations for how she should deal with her appetites. And that's why I love this book so much. I really do. It turns everything inside out. It turns everything yes on its head. And that's what makes it fun for, or at least what made it so fun for me to read, even though there are moments where I was like, well, that's kind of gross. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny you should bring up the grossness though. I thought that was so awesome because it you know, is, and this is not a spoiler, but there's some sex in the book and some body stuff and it's just real bodies take up space and they have smells. And, you know, sometimes in the throes of passion, you're doing things where you kind of look at each other like, what is happening here? <laughs> oh, my God. Let's do it again and never speak of it. And kudos to Roxanne. I can remember that was one of your suggestions. Roxanne was like, this, more of this mm -hmm. yes. vibe. <laughs> it because was it was so grossest. good. Yeah, it was one of the grossest, most like we're using sex as a weapon scenes. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of energy behind that. And and Roxanne just knew like that's part that's part of the story that we're telling here. It's really subversive. 
Mm-hmm. It's really subversive and smart and just undoes, right? It undoes this narrative that even, you know, some books feed into. I'm I'm a bookseller. I've been doing this for more <laughs> than a minute. We've seen some stuff come around more than once where you're like, okay, that's great. There's an audience for it. I genuinely believe there's a book for everyone out there. That's great. But to have something like Hot Springs Drive sort of appear magically and start reading it, it's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And let's let's see what happens. But it is, I think, Jackie and Teresa, especially Jackie, but there's so much desire and tension and want and just this idea that you don't necessarily have to wait for something to be handed to you. And I think that is really, it's a challenging idea mm-hmm. for some people. And mm-hmm. I loved it. It was just really satisfying. It was really sad. You know, I I think happily in the beginning when Grove was sort of talking about who they were going to market it to and it was, you know, we're going to try to like get the crime audience. I was, I was nervous about that because I, to me, I wasn't writing a crime novel and, and I know that that's such a dedicated and I'm part of that fandom. It made me nervous, but I think what I'm seeing is a lot of people having the same reaction as you, Miwa, which is like, oh, this is not what I was expecting at all, but in a good way. And that's been really exciting for me. Yes, there's crime. Yes, there's murder. There's sex and desire. and But there's this other thing that's happening that, you know, it's just exciting. It's just exciting to see people react like that. Part of it, too, is watching these characters move through this world you've created for them. And every single one of them is uncomfortable. Every single one of these characters is just like, what? What have you done? (laughs) And I just want to talk about the cast for a second, because I'm guessing you sort of had Teresa and Jackie early on. Like, you kind of had those voices very quickly. But, you know, their families aren't perfectly aligned. You know, Jackie certainly has more children, and, and Teresa's kid is who she is as well. But you're playing generationally, too. Yeah, I think Teresa's voice in revi- in revisions became stronger than it was. Okay. She was definitely there, but she wasn't as present as she became, mm-hmm. which was, you know, just important in terms of it not being yet another story of this poor angelic victim. Right. Ha- you know, like what, you know, happening to her. I wanted her to be a full person and I you know, you talked about how things move quickly. I mean, I think I give you all of Teresa's life in, you know, two or three pages, <laughs> which I think draws on my, like my short story, my flash fiction background, mm-hmm. you know, a way to to get things very immediately and resonantly, sometimes even more resonantly than you can in a full-blown chapter. Jackie was there from the very beginning. I think Roxanne can speak to this too. She was, she was vicious. I mean, she's vicious. But in mm-hmm. our, the first draft that Roxanne saw that we worked on together, she was just hate. Okay. <laughs> it was it yeah. was tough. It was dark. It was a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually like dark fiction. And I have no problem with like unlikable, odious characters. But it felt like it, that reduced or took away some of the complexity of what's actually going on with Jackie. Mm-hmm. She's human. She makes some terrible decisions. She's a mess. And at times she's cruel. But that's not the whole of who she is. She has lots and lots of other qualities, many of them good. And 
So, and I think that's the, the the truth about most of us. I think we all have those dark things inside of us. And then we have our better selves. And I wanted to be able, I wanted Lindsay to be able to show us both Jackie's best and worst parts. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, it's, you know, when you give a writer a, an edited manuscript, you never know what's going to come back. Sometimes they're going to ignore all of your suggestions. And I always tell writers, you can, it's your book, you know what's best. But she did probably the best revision I've ever seen from a writer. She really rethought everything. And it, it was just incredible because the difference between the first version I saw and the version that you see is remarkable. It's the same book, the same energy, the same like excellence, but truly she reimagined it. And I mean, it's, it was just a masterclass in revision. So when you're working on your own stuff, Roxanne, whether it's fiction or non, I mean, obviously when you're writing for the times, there's a whole process in place with your Mm -hmm. editor and everything else. But what's the revision process like for you when you're on the other side of things when it's you handing over the revisions? You know, I tend to go through and and it takes me a while to edit. I'm a slow editor. I'm a fast writer, but I'm a slow editor, especially for other people. Because I go like line by line, word by word, sentence by sentence. Like I do it all. I do line editing and I do Mm -hmm. developmental editing. I can't not do line editing. It's a really bad habit, but it is Mm -hmm. what it is. Like if that word doesn't work, it doesn't work. And I'm going to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. And so I just go all the way through and I just put in like my real reaction comments. Like this doesn't work. This is incredible. <laughs> I'm laughing and- because Roxanne, some of the most terrifying comments. And I think I've said this to you before would just be a string of like five question marks. Yeah. Like, at <laughs> so the line. Just, like I don't Maybe know what's happening here. here. Yes, and I would be like, "Oh my God, she's right." (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know the question marks. She nailed it. But people forget writing a book is not coal mining, but it is hard work, right? right. And to sustain a narrative, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, for hundreds of pages, not every sentence is going to be golden during the first draft. You know, there are going to be times when you're like, "It's midnight, and I've been working all day, but I have to get at this manuscript." You're not going to write your best sentences, perhaps. Mm-hmm. They're going to be there, and it's just clay to be molded later. Yeah. And we all have them in our manuscripts. It's totally normal and natural. And when I um, encounter something where I'm just like, hmm, I, I just sometimes just put question marks. because like, I don't even know what to say. It's just something, something's not working here. Yeah, I even have that when I'm writing copy on our end. And, you know, obviously mm-hmm. writing copy, not the same thing. But I do have an editor that I will turn to and be like, I can't put my finger, something's really wrong. I don't know what I did, but we can't send this out. And it could be four sentences, but I would like those four sentences to be the best four sentences they can be. And having an editor to lean on, I mean, we have an editor for the show too. He fixes lots of stuff for me. I would like to not go it alone, as it were. It's just also really helpful to have that added Perspective. I mean, the the energy of a narrative arc, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whether it's an essay collection or poetry or a novel or a short story collection, like there is still an arc within the pieces, right? Like you want the stories to have an arc within the collection. You want the essays to have an arc within the book itself. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. a novel has an arc. Like this, these are the things that you don't necessarily think about when you're reading, but if they're not there, you know, it's like hitting a wall and you're just like, what 
is happening. Absolutely. You know, I and, and I think that we should give readers, readers in general are very sophisticated. Yes, absolutely. They know when something is off. You mm-hmm. cannot fool readers. When yep. something isn't working, it's not working. And that's why I actually do enjoy hearing from readers because mm-hmm. most of, I'm not talking about Goodreads. I do not get into all of that. But in general, readers just know what they like and they know what they don't like. They know what mm-hmm. works and what doesn't work. And is it subjective? 100%. But I think it's an excellent barometer of, you know, whether or not you've nailed a narrative arc or the substance of something. And I appreciate that feedback once I get through my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's voice, right? Mm-hmm. Like narrative arc is essentially a fancy way of saying voice. And whether, you know, that's a close third person or it's first, but I really want to hand myself over to voice. That's really what I want more than anything is just to say, tell me a story and I will follow you. And if I get cool stuff that I hadn't thought about before, if I get to be poked in a new direction, that's a bonus. I would prefer to read something that is going to push me to think. Mm -hmm. in a way that I wasn't expecting to. So I want to just talk about influences for a second. I know you guys have known each other for a million years, and obviously your work has influenced each other, but let's talk about other influences, because this is an excuse for me, Lindsay, when I saw that you were a fan of Elspeth Barker and Mm -hmm. O Caledonia. Roxanne, have you read O Caledonia? If I did, I was very young, and I don't remember it. I'm bringing you a copy. I'm bringing you a copy when I see you in a couple weeks. I'm bringing you a copy, because you will groove on this book. You will groove on this so much. And actually, <laughs> Maggie O'Farrell turned me on to this book, which was not expecting. And it's great. But Lindsay, I need to you said this book helped you with a problem. This it novel, did. this tiny, 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 slim gothic Scottish novel helped you with a problem with Hot Springs Drive. It did. So it was right around the time when I had gotten the edits back from Roxanne. Mm-hmm. I was traveling with my family and I was having a hard time because it since I had written Hot Springs Drive, I had embarked on another novel. I was writing another novel. So I was in that headspace. And I was having a hard time getting a foothold back into that world. And I just thought, you know, like I wrote it during the pandemic. Right. A lot had changed since then. I was like, am I even this? Per-? I started getting all these doubts in my head. And I knew that it was going to be a very large undertaking, a very large rewrite to bring it from this sort of like rough draft to what I wanted to present to the world and what Roxanne was seeing in it. And I couldn't find my way in. And I would embark on these little exercises, you know, like letting myself write like a paragraph of some scene to try to get myself back in the world. And we went to the bookstore. We were traveling. We went to the bookstore and, and they had... We went to Barnes and Noble. What am I saying? Not the bookstore. We went to Barnes and Noble in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Oh, I know that store. Yes. I used to work at Barnes and Noble. We can talk about that later. Love it so much. They had O Caledonia on a special display table. And I had remembered, I believe it was my friend, uh, Megan Phillips, who had mentioned that she loved it. And and we have the same taste in books. So I thought, okay, I'm just, I need an easy win. You know, I'm going to go for this book. And the opening chapter Mm -hmm. where you Mm -hmm. see her, you see her dead body at the bottom of the stairs. And it's just, it's beautifully written. The yep. light is there and the textures and it's shocking. And you're immediately present. I thought, I can do this. I Now I remember. Now I remember what I was writing. 
Mm-hmm. And I sat down and I wrote the opening. Um, not It's not the opening scene now, but it was, you know, when you see Teresa in the garage. Oh, yeah. Similar to what happens in the beginning of O Caledonia. And then I want to shout out also, I read around the same time I read Jack Jem's Empty Theater, which is her most recent novel. And it was, you know, years of research. At one point, I think it was like 250,000 words, beast of a book that she whittled down, I think, to about 100,000 words. And it's alternating viewpoints um, between Queen Sissy and King uh, Ludwig and based on real people. And but she had so it's just clear she had so much fun with it. And. I thought, you know, these are also kind of real people that I'm writing and it's offering me a way in or like an ownership that I needed to remind myself of, a confidence that I needed to remind myself of. That authenticity, I think that you were touching on earlier about voice and narrative, reminding me of the rules of the world that I was existing in. So those two, I think, were huge in terms of getting me in Mm -hmm when I was taking what Roxanne had sent me and reforming it into, you know, what I was going to send back to her. Those were, I think, specifically what influenced Hot Springs Mm -hmm. Drive. Okay. Roxanne, let's go a little bigger with Mm -hmm. you. I mean, obviously, opinions pulls from lots of different places, but I want to talk about some of the writers who made the Roxanne Gay that we know, you know, between the story collections and the opinion work, and maybe even the advice column. I do do like reading your advice column. (laughs) I like writing my advice column. <laughs> when I was growing up, I was in Omaha, Nebraska mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And I had immigrant parents, so I didn't really... And they you know, they were readers, but they did not really know much about young people's literature. Mm-hmm. So I got to read whatever I want. And they just assumed if it was in a book, it was fine. So I read a lot of like Clan of the Cave Bear mm-hmm. and... I mean, at a wildly inappropriate age, I think it was eight or nine. So I read a lot of these big, sweeping James Michener. Right. I've, I've read everything he's written. James Clavell, Clive Cussler, Tom Clancy. I read a lot of genre work growing mm-hmm. up. And that really made me appreciate story. Right. And fast-paced sort of narrative arcs where there's a rise and fall and a rise and fall where there's some resolution along the way for each of the crises and then there's like the big resolution. And so there was a lot of that Little House on the Prairie problematic, we know, but (laughs) many girls like me were, I think the first book I remember reading was Little House on the Prairie, um, the Little House in the Big Woods. And I just loved that you could write about ordinary girls in ordinary places and make it seem extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as I got older and got into high school and college, I started to have a more sophisticated reading palette and, more importantly, a more diverse reading palette. Right. And that's when I was first introduced to things like Black writers. And it's sad to say that I didn't really read Black writers until high school, but that's kind of what happens when you grow up in predominantly white communities, especially mm-hmm. 40 years ago. It was a very different landscape. But I, you know, was introduced to Audre Lorde and Toni Morrison, and they were absolutely fundamental in making me the writer I am today in terms of both my fiction and my nonfiction. Just beautiful sentences and important ideas. And that's certainly what I aspire to in my own work. Yeah, it's funny when I think about some of the stuff. I mean, I was more a Plum Creek little house. Mm-hmm. I really, I wanted a sod house so badly. My parents were oh. like, you may not. And I was like, 
I have a shovel. I can go to this. They're like, no. Do have not you go read to- the book? Um, I can't remember her name. I think she's actually based in Chicago. and She's mm-hmm. a lovely person. I've met her a few times. Wendy McClure? Yes. Yes. I love her book. And the title is falling out of my head, but she basically went and did all of the things as like an Mm -hmm. actual adult in the 21st century. She went and did the little house thing. It's so great. And, you know, she made a balloon out of pig bladder. Get that title and I will drop it in the show notes because it is, it's a very, very fun book. And Wendy is terrific. Yes. And it is one of those moments where you're like, what? But also, you know, I read a lot of Cheever and a lot of Updike and a lot of all of the thing. you know, that some of it is aged really well and some mm-hmm. of it you're kind of like, okay, I'm glad I read that, but I don't need to go back. And <laughs> it's, you know, for the longest time, I had a choice between Maxine Hong Kingston mm-hmm. and, you know, Farewell to Manzanar. And there was kind of like point A and point B. <laughs> and it's always interesting, especially for those of us who are people of color, mm-hmm. like, the choices were so limited and there could be only one. There really could be only one for so many years. I actually, the only two Asian writers I knew mm-hmm. of were Maxine Hong Kingston mm-hmm. and Amy Tan. Right. And I mean, great writers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, great writers, but they were not at all the only two Asian women mm-hmm. writing. And then, you know, now finally we've recognized that Asian identity contains multitudes and that there are all kinds of ethnicities within that. And we're starting to recognize that those writers are out there and putting amazing work in the world. But my goodness, we've come a long way, even though it feels like we haven't. We there's progress. I mean, I'll take I'll I'll take the progress. And and part of that progress, too, is sort of across the board. Like, again, you know, Lindsay's writing about bodies and women's Mm -hmm. desires and women's rage like right rage is still that thing where theoretically i guess we're not supposed to get angry we're not supposed we're not supposed to have rage we're not supposed to wait for it have have opinions which Mm -hmm. i mean that was a factory preset on me from a tiny tiny age right didn't get that memo yeah same thing but i mean i think all of us grew up in spaces where it was like well hi i'm a tiny person in a pinafore and mary jane's and guess what i have many opinions and you're going to hear all of them (laughs) I still struggle with that. Really? Okay. Roxanne, I think it's so beautiful how in the beginning of Opinions, you talk about watching your mother have opinions. Mm-hmm. Not your father, your mother. Yeah. And how she just, she said, she had things to say and she said them. And, you know, I know from your Twitter that she's still like that, which is still Oh my God. She, she, and she's coming to Chicago. Uh, she is? Me. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Can she come on stage with us? I will do my very best. You know, it's... <laughs> It's funny because both of my parents are opinionated, but many, even though every culture is patriarchal, Haitian culture is in its own way very matriarchal. And the oh. men think they run the show, and then there are the women actually running the show. And okay. in in my household, like there was never any question about like who the boss was. Mm-hmm. Even when my dad gave us permission to do something, we had to go and ask our mom for, like for real permission. <laughs> like he doesn't really give us permission. <laughs> I mean, we respected him, but we also understood that until my mom also gave us mm-hmm. her blessings, nothing was really going to happen. And she was so opinionated and not shy about it. And for a black woman, a- an immigrant mm-hmm. in 1980s late 1970s omaha nebraska to do that the level of courage it took i that i now understand like what it must have been like for my parents in this place that was so inhospitable to them 
and that she still stood her ground whenever it mattered really was an amazing model for me. Yeah, I had a similar situation. I mean, my tiny mother from Tokyo, but <laughs> same thing. Like, yeah, I mm, she had she had many, many, many and tiny immigrant mom, too. And she was mm-hmm. like, uh-huh. And I'm look here. at the result. I mean, yeah, right. Like, look what they <laughs> did for us. It's incredible. It's fabulous. But Lindsay, you grew up in Florida, yeah? I did. Okay. And now you're based in the Midwest. I'm in Chicago. Yeah. My family was Mormon. My parents met at BYU. Talk about patriarchal culture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, But we actually were excommunicated from the Mormon church when I was around three or four. And then we moved to Florida and um, embarked on our Presbyterian life. And I came to Chicago for what I thought was just two years to go to grad school at the Art Institute of Chicago. And they were the only school that let me in. I was mm-hmm. rejected. I was rejected by eight, I believe, eight schools. They didn't care about your GRE scores, and they didn't care what you wrote. You didn't have to say, "Oh, I'm a poet" or "I'm mm-hmm. a fiction writer." Mm-hmm. They just they wanted to see if you had something behind what you wrote. And so I I got in, thankfully. And I thought, okay, you know, I'll be here for two years, and I'll go back home because my whole family was there, my nephews and everything. Mm-hmm. I've never gone. <laughs> I've been in Chicago for eighteen years now. And I have kids of my own, and it is the best place to raise a family, aside from being too expensive. It is, <laughs> just, they are so lucky. They don't even know how lucky they are. Um, it's wild to hear you mention the Art Institute of Chicago. Gabriel Bump finished his undergrad there. Mm-hmm. And the new Naturals is so good. And if either of you have a free moment, it is so, so good. It's It's Ooh. not quite about starting a commune. But it's it's a bunch of folks who get a little fed up with the world and decide, well, hey, maybe we can dig into a mountain and make a thing. Ooh. And it's the voice is great. He does dialogue, man. He just there's this it's not dissimilar to what you're doing in Hot Springs Drive in terms of the forward momentum of the story. Like you're just always moving forward. And he'll talk about sort of these tiny set pieces where not a lot happens. And I'm like, no, dude, actually a lot happens in the dialogue. It's like watching these tiny plays <laughs> as stuff happens. And I do feel like you were doing a lot of that in Hot Springs Drive, that this constant back and forth with the dialogue mm-hmm. kept us always moving forward as well, which I really appreciate. I mean, like I said, I was deep in the story. I did not want to put this book down at any point. And I do have the luxury of being able to read stuff straight through when I feel like it. The dialogue, though. Yeah. Where does that come from? Are you are you watching a lot of theater? Are you watching a lot of tele? What's going on here? Because the dialogue I, is really, the dialogue in this book is terrific. I can think of two reasons. So I do have a theater background. I studied um, okay. the method at the Art, Insti- or the Art Institute, the, the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute okay. in New York for a little bit before I realized what I actually wanted to do was create emotions in people, which I mm-hmm. thought I could do with acting, but which I was felt like I was more adept at doing with writing, which I had been doing my mm-hmm. whole life. So, you know, but the other thing is that in my house growing up, we were just obsessed with how people spoke with vernacular with, okay. I mean, we had raising Arizona memorized at <laughs> way too early of an age. I mean, okay. my grandparents had certain VHS recordings of different movies and they would just let us watch them. Roxanne, you were talking about how your your parents just let you read whatever. You know, I was reading V.C. Andrews as a kid and I was watching these movies that I probably wouldn't let my own kid watch at that age. But we just had an ear. I can remember, you know, imitating my parents, my sister, 
doing it to each other, cracking mm-hmm. each other up and just like unique turns of phrase or the way someone would describe something in just this whole new way, we would just obsess over that. And I think, you know, I was a huge eavesdropper. I still am, you know, I just, I, I think it just comes from like looking mining my surroundings for new ways of expressing mm-hmm. something. I never want to use dialogue as as filler. I always want it to matter. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't sound revolutionary, <laughs> you know, like I know every writer feels the same way, but I you know, I really want it to to be an opportunity not only to say something but how you're saying it means something as well. So I think, you know, that's how I approach dialogue. And I think also like it's a way as a writer to sort of show what people allow out and what they hide at the same time that they don't even know what they're allowing out, right? There's a lot that happens in the silences in Hot Springs Drive. You do a lot with, I'm just going to let it hang in the air for a second. (laughs) And everyone kind of stands around and does this. (laughs) Roxanne, you've been writing across genres for a really long time, whether it's literally short stories, novels, teleplays, do we call them screenplays now? I don't even know mm-hmm. what we call things. Streamers? <laughs> but you've also written comic books. I mean, dialogue is clearly something you do incredibly well as well. But you also write very tightly. And when you're writing these opinion pieces, you're coming in at 1,200 words, which is like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean... Okay. Especially but... because I love to write long, but yeah. you wouldn't know it. <laughs> yeah. All right. But switching gears... When you're bouncing between all of these different pieces, I mean, it's been a minute since we've had a full essay collection from you. Yeah. Like opinions. I mean, when was Bad Feminist? 2014. So it's been uh, nine years. Okay. And I, I mean, I see your byline everywhere because I read (laughs) it whenever I see it. It's a lot of work though it's a lot of switching gears and again writing yes it is it is a great set of muscles and you can take it wherever you want but not everyone can do mm-hmm. that kind of switching it up yeah i think of it as cross training even though okay. I, I hate cross training but reading writing like all of these things are are ways of sort of strengthening the writing muscle mm-hmm. and when i write across genres i feel like i'm gaining new skills that are applicable to almost everything that I do. Right. And I love the challenge of it too. It's not that it's easy to work across genres. It's actually that it's challenging. Mm -hmm. And that keeps me really engaged and excited and like, oh, wow, I have to write a comic book. Well, how do, how how do I do that? Right. Um, And then I sort of muddle through until I get better. And the same with screenplays, which It seems easy, and people will tell you it's easy to write a screenplay, and in some ways it is. The writing generally comes very fast, but it's really hard to write a good screenplay Mm -hmm. (laughs) that will get made. So I'm really enjoying that transition, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's very humbling, (laughs) and I'm working on getting better, and I just know that I'm getting things there and in like writing comics that I can bring to my fiction to make it you know, I think more vibrant, more cinematic, still literary. Mm-hmm. And I can also bring it to my nonfiction to create a stronger sense of the moment. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's all of a piece for me. Right. How does it feel having opinions back in the world? Again, because you've been doing so many other different kinds of things. And, you know, people are going to respond to you as they do. Readers bring half of their world with them to anything mm-hmm. they're, they're they're doing. but 
how is it? How's it been? I mean, the book's been out in the world for what? A couple of weeks? A week? couple of weeks. Came okay. out on came out on October 10th, which okay. was it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And so it's been interesting to see the book in people's hands. You know, the, the yeah. thing with this particular book is that it's a collection of previously published work. Mm-hmm. So uh, many of the pieces may be familiar, but I don't know that there are many people that have read all of the pieces, except right. maybe my wife. Um, and so it's just interesting to see people react to the lighthearted pieces as mm-hmm. well as the more serious pieces. Um you know, some people are like, it's kind of repetitive. I'm like, yeah, racism is repetitive. So, you know, sorry that I had to write about yet another police shooting. It's just really interesting. There's a range of responses Mm -hmm. as there always is and as there always should be, but people have been really enjoying it. And Mm -hmm. I've been meeting some really interesting readers that I would not have guessed were my readers. So that's been uh, nice as well. Oh, that's fun. Are you talking (laughs) about men? No, never. You know, there are about 20 men in the world that read my work and <laughs> 17 of them are gay, uh, which God bless them. I love them. My my compatriots in the alphabet life. But yeah, a couple men, like I met a man yesterday. I was at a library fundraiser here in Charlotte. They're building mm-hmm. a new library and they need $100 million, which I guess they don't have lying around. And um, sorry. Um, so it's just interesting to then meet a man who's like a, like a, a straight heterosexual very like no, man who works in finance of all things at a bank and is like i read your re- work every week and i'm like really okay and then it just it's a reminder whenever that happens like don't assume who your audience actually is sometimes your work does seep into corners of the world where you never thought it would be and actually, I like that. And mm-hmm. the other type of guy I tend to encounter is the guy who's like, I don't agree with you <laughs> on anything, but I like your work. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just led with the second part, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of times men want to tell me they don't agree with me. They want me to know up front they're not having it. And that's okay because I don't agree with them either. <laughs> Yeah, that's the beauty of the written word, though, man. We oh, get to so do great. so much stuff and have all of the feelings. We yeah. can have all of the feelings. I was talking to a young writer about this the other day. I was like, listen, writing exists so you can be in your feelings. <laughs> like, just do the work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do the work. Live the life. Do the work. But if you're not talking about the emotion behind it, like, you're kind of missing the point. Like it's not enough to just have pretty sentences. Like something has to change. And that's really the place you start, right? So Lindsay, what's next for you? I mean, you have written across, like there is some stuff that readers from the earlier work will see in Hot Springs Drive. Certainly some, just some general sort of, I I don't want to call them themes, but I'm afraid I'm going to do that. But it seems like you found kind of a sweet spot with this book. Yeah, I, you know, I will say I am what I am in terms of my themes. Mm-hmm. And I will set out, you know, I thought when I wrote Eat Only When You're Hungry that I was writing a really like funny book. And it's an extremely sad book. It turns out mm-hmm. it's very, very sad. Yeah, but it it has occurred to me that crime offers a way in plot wise right. that I can then explore in a literary way. But having said that, I mean, anytime I set out to write 
a certain thing, what it ends up being is very different from my intentions. So, you know, I, I have embarked on a couple new things. One of them is based not on a real crime, but it does, it mm-hmm. does have crime in it. And the other thing is I kind of want to write an, a fictional take on Patricia Buckley, who was William F. Buckley Jr. Oh, I know exactly who you're talking about. And all I can say is, please do that. I would like to read that. She <laughs> I would read that a too. hot mess, amazing woman. And, um, you know, I've collected some tales about her and, you know, listened to her son's memoir about her mm-hmm. and William F. Buckley Jr.'s mm-hmm. death. And, but she just had the sharpest tongue. She, she's, she's kind of my next, um, white whale, I would guess. Oh, please, please, please. I like your whale. <laughs> I think we're ready for this book immediately. Oh, I think so too. <laughs> I think this could be great. All right, Roxanne, you're on tour, obviously, for opinions now. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of work going on in the background that I know you're not supposed to talk about, so we won't talk about that. But book-wise, what's next for you? Are you working on another novel? Are we going to see more stories? I mean, you've even edited yes. like the best American short stories. I have that volume. Yeah. I am working on a YA novel called How to Be Heard, okay. which should be out next year. Okay. And I am also working on a book that I've been trying to write for several years now called How to Be Heard. It's a book of writing advice, and that okay. will hopefully be out in 2025. Wait, Roxanne, what's your YA novel called? It's called, I'm sorry, The Year I Learned Everything. Okay. Want to and make sure we got that right. Yes. And then How to Be Heard. And then mm-hmm. I'm writing a romance novel with Channing Tatum that will be out <laughs> in, um, yeah, I know, as one does. I'm sorry. I love this idea so much. I'm not the biggest romance reader, but this idea alone. Oh, you're going to read this one. It's going to be good. Of course I will. <laughs> um, this one will be out on Valentine's Week 2025. Okay. I just Can you talk about idea. like the research you and Channing have been doing for that? <laughs> We have been doing very rigorous other? research and collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> I love all of this. I mean, we get to do such amazing things with books. I really yeah, I mean, like it's not it's a bad a life. Wild. It is wild the cool things that get to happen when you've got a book yeah. in your hands, I mean, man. If you had ever ta- told me I would be doing some of the projects that I'm working mm-hmm. on right now, I would have just said, I'm sorry. I'm living on planet Earth. (laughs) And I don't know where you are, but that's not this planet. (laughs) Okay, so before I let you guys go, because I knew this was going to happen, we're totally bumping up against time. Any advice for writers who are starting out? Either of you? Because, I mean, Lindsay, you've been doing this for more than a minute. Like, you have really done the work. And Roxanne, you just said it. Like, if anyone had told me, this would be the thing. A couple of things come to mind. Number one is, you know, between the moment that I said, I'm going to focus on writing, this is going to be the thing that I do. Mm -hmm. I'm going to endeavor to be a writer to the time that my first book came out on a very micro small press Mm -hmm. was a decade. Mm -hmm. And I think if someone said to me that day that I wanted to just start being a writer, it's going to be 10 years before anything happens, really. Mm -hmm. I would have said, oh my God, you know, it would have really discouraged me. But instead, it was a series of steps I took toward a thing, right? Community that I built. And, you know, you just keep taking the next step. You just take the next step and then the next step. And sometimes it's a big step, sometimes it's a very small step. And then the other thing that I always tell my students that shouldn't be a revelation, but can sometimes feel like a revelation is how would you write your book? 
Not how would Roxane Gay write a book? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not how would Lindsay Hunter write a book? How do you think you would write it? Because I always think of the story Linda Berry told of when she was going to write Cruddy. If I was going to write a novel, I would paint it first. And then she finally realized, oh, I am writing the novel. So I will paint it first. And then she wrote it from there. So how would you do it and do it that way? There's no wrong answer. I would say I agree with both of those things. And I would also suggest, and I do not mean this in a woo-woo cheesy way, you have to take yourself seriously as a writer. Even when you doubt yourself, even when you want to give up, you have to take yourself seriously because for many, many years, no one else will. Or maybe like two other people will. And they're like legally obligated to. So (laughs) part of that means when you tell yourself, I'm going to write this weekend, you have to follow through because otherwise you're never, ever going to like finish something to send into the world. You have to write in order to be a writer. And you have to write in order to achieve all of the milestones that you are imagining for yourself. More often than not, when someone asks me, for example, how do I get an agent? How do I break in? What connections do I need? My very first question is always, have you written a book? And I would say 80% of the time, the answer is, well, not yet. I just want to be prepared. Like the preparation is on the page. Right. And so just take yourself seriously as a writer. I love that. I love you both. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Lindsay Hunter, Hot Springs Drive is out now. Roxanne Gay, of course, it's always good to see you. Opinions, also out now. Plenty of backlist between the two of them, too. So when you're done with those books, we have more. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you, Miwa. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic titles to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Hot Springs Drive. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie. I'm at my Barnes & Noble in Leewood, Kansas. I'm going to go ahead and kick things off, but I, (laughs) before I get into Lindsay Hunter's fantastic book and a recommendation for her, I have to gush about Roxanne Gay. I love her so much. She, Uh I think, is a national treasure. I think her articles in the New York Times, her essays are always, I just think, so thoughtful and inviting and challenging. Just the perfect combination of something that everybody should be able to read and attach themselves to. Her fiction, however, should also not be missed. Uh, She has a beautiful short story collection called Aiti. It is absolutely lovely. And her novel, An Untamed State, has been on my TBR pile for a good long time. But after today's episode and just listening to just the wonder that is her, I'm bumping that up on the list. I just think Roxanne Gay's words are regularly fizzing inside of my brain. So I think it's really time for me and all of you readers to just dive in. Just pick something you will be treated very, very well. She's got great taste, too. Like, I stalk her on Goodreads. (laughs) Oh, God. Her taste level is Uh, insane. Yeah. So even before she started doing, you know, this, it's it's getting recommendations from her. They're always rock solid. I love how genuinely she seems to love these books. You know, she just seems like a real person, which is something that we all appreciate, too. Roxanne Galev, I think she would appreciate that very much. Yeah. yeah. Love, 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 love her. On to my rack. So... I was thinking about peerless writing. I was thinking about fearless writing. And I was thinking about 
the literary thriller genre that seems to be just gaining momentum in the book world. And it brought me back to a book I had read years ago called Eileen by one Miss Atessa Mashfeg. Ooh, baby, this book. This is a suspenseful wonder. It's narrated by the title character Eileen, who is recounting uh, her 20s and an incident that really changed her deeply. So as a young woman in the 60s, we'll call her self-loathing, but I think circumstance loathing works as well. We'll just say an all-around loathing Eileen. Uh, Young, loathing Eileen is working a really meager job at a boys' prison while also really struggling to clean up the messes of her alcoholic father. And I say messes in countless ways. She's in a quagmire, and she is longing for escape or any sort of ounce of hope. And she sort of finds it in a new hire at the prison, Rebecca St. John. And Rebecca is bright and lovely and charismatic and beautiful. And she's she's a stunner. And Eileen is taken right away and kind of feels this attachment growing pretty quickly. And her friendship that she starts to, to develop with Rebecca starts to blossom. And these affections turn into a level of complicity. And her ticket out becomes skewed and skewered. I can't really say much more because I don't want to spoil anything, but just know, oh boy, you are in for a weird and dark ride, but told very beautifully. This is Mashfeg's debut novel, and it is delicious. I think um, it's got vibes of Shirley Jackson meets Patricia Highsmith but with a voice and a feel that is so utterly individual and uh, succinct and very, very Mashveg. So please check out Eileen by Atessa Mashveg. It is fantastic. And there's a movie coming out soon. So read it now before you uh, watch the film. Jamie, what do you have for us? Uh, well, besides also being a big Mashvik fan, I'm going to talk a little bit. What I think I like is kind of like that darker side, too, of domesticity, right? So when an author can really nail the abundant pressures that women experience fulfilling all these different roles and expectations, when this sort of collides, it can be overwhelming, which I think makes for really explosive fiction, but it's just also something that I personally recognize as something that's sort of simmering there, right? Uh, I hear it. I, sister, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> we do a lot. We do everything we have. To, I mean, we have to keep track of everything. We have to balance everything. It's a lot of pressure. And sometimes um, we are guilty of turning that dial up on ourselves. <laughs> And uh, I think that's the question of the protagonist in this book that I'm going to recommend today. And that is The Need by Helen Phillips. And it's is something happening to her or is she just cracking under all of these pressures, these various things that she's facing? And so this is not, I want to say it's not a thriller, but I, I think it is a thriller. It's a quiet thriller, though. It's an obvious one. In this book, we're going to meet Molly and Molly is a mom. She's got a ton of roles to fill, like I'm saying. She's a new parent. She's a wife. She has a career as a paleobotanist. There's a lot. She's got a lot happening. And the action of the story kicks off because of something really simple. And that is 
she hears a noise, a bump in the night. And she's feeling pretty on edge lately because she's not getting any sleep. She's a parent and um, she's got all of this pressure, right? So she hears this sound this one evening and is both at the same time, she's, she's certain that it's an intruder and is also simultaneously convinced and worried that in her sort of constant heightened fear state that she lives in as a mom, that it's making her believe things that aren't true, that there are threats out there that really aren't there. Motherhood may be causing her to become unreasonable and fearful when in day-to-day life, she's this lady scientist, right? And so the story sort of progresses from there and things get eerie. She, the, she really sets the mood. Things get spooky. We are right there with her. We're getting paranoid ourselves while we're reading this. We can't tell. We can't tell either. Uh, we, we, we're we sympathizing with her. Being a mom is hard. Everything could be a danger. When she hears uh, at one point like a siren, like a distant siren wailing, she thinks it's her baby crying out, right? So she's not feeling up to snuff right now. She's sleep deprived. She's weighed down and jumpy. And at one point she sees something bizarre in the ottoman in her living room. I will give nothing away, but that sets her off on this crazy adventure, uh, the thing in the ottoman. It's just this dark, really, I think, really well done, really brilliantly executed meditation on like motherhood and the darkness that sometimes just threatens to overwhelm us. Um, It is, I think, exactly the type of story that fans of Hot Springs Drive would love. So I think, you know, add it to your TBR. And that's The Need by Helen Phillips. Second that a thousand percent. The way that Phillips talks about motherhood that is infused with guilt for thinking the things that she's thinking while simultaneously being a hyper aware and vigilant of the safety of the life of her child just in a day to day while also wanting to give up and then feeling horrible for wanting to like there's it's just this endless vicious cycle and oh boy i've got three sisters who all have three children each and i know for a fact that some of those things have gone through their heads great pick love it love it but that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into Port Over. This was such a wonderful episode. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe if you don't want to miss anything. I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.